In 1981, Mehmet Ali Agsha shot Pope John Paul II. He was sentenced to life in prison. The Pope, who survived the assassination attempt, met with Mehmet in 1983. After the meeting, the Pope said that he had forgiven him for what he did. Nevertheless, the man did stay incarcerated for 19 years. But finally, in the year 2000, the Pope urged the Italian president to pardon Mehmet. He did. And Mehmet was deported back to Turkey, where he began serving a prison sentence for a different murder he committed in 1979. It was a very public example of dramatic forgiveness, uh, but it didn't have the happiest of endings. Now imagine if the Pope had met his attacker there in his prison cell, and not only said, I forgive you, but then said, and now come live with me in the Vatican. Now that would have been a shocking forgiveness that we hadn't seen before in the modern age. The forgiveness in our text tonight is amazing. We have to stop and consider the fact these are real people that real things happen to, real relationships. I'm sure many of you have um, real difficulties with members of your family. No member of your family has sold you into slavery after leaving you for for beating you and leaving you for dead in a cistern for a while, right? And that's what's happening. This is an amazing level of forgiveness. The brothers had the greatest guilt. Joseph had the greatest power. No one could fault him for striking down his brothers for what they had done. They had it coming. They deserved it. They were guilty many times over. And the stage was set for one of history's great revenge stories. Have you noticed that Hollywood is obsessed with revenge stories Uh, We love them so much. All of these movie franchises are just about angry men who are taking revenge on everyone, right? They're just killing everybody, you know. Something happened to them. They hurt their family or whatever. And then it's two hours of just revenge and murder and everybody cheering about that. And so here we are. The stage is set for one of history's greatest revenge stories. And instead, we see one of history's greatest reconciliations. God has forgiveness ready for every guilty sinner on the earth. And we remember that Jesus spoke to us, his people, about showing mercy. And he said to we who have been forgiven, go and do likewise. So we want to think about forgiveness, how God has forgiven us, and how we can forgive others uh, in this text. Verse 1, Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry. Put each one's silver at the top of his bag. Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag, along with the silver for his grave. So he did as Joseph told him. In some ways, Joseph shows us things about God's character and nature and the way that the Lord works in our lives. We call this typology in the Bible when we see it. Uh, But God, we just want to remember throughout this section, God does not deal deceptively with us. Uh, it's, it's hard to know what Joseph was thinking with his plots and his schemes. But apart from that, we have seen that throughout this, this whole saga unfolding, Joseph has been very generous to his brothers, even as he's working out this plan that he is uh, coming to a culmination to here. He gives them the grain. He gives them back their silver. He throws them a feast. In this case, they didn't just get the grain they paid for, but he says, hey, man, give them as much as they can carry. Give them as much as their donkeys can load. And it reminds us that God is tender and generous to us. He gives us all that we need, all we can carry for the journey, plus 
hidden treasure that we don't even know about until it becomes revealed in our lives. Ambrose, the fourth century theologian, wrote this, even though we are unable to see Christ's gifts, nevertheless, he is giving them. We get to discover those gifts and treasures along the way as we walk our road that the Lord has given us. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, I find it funny that the silver and the chalice are placed specifically at the top of the bags again, like they, the silver had been last time. Even after the debacle of the last trip, even after the, the brothers have been all freaked out that they get you know, to their campsite and they realize that their silver is there and maybe they're guilty of theft, you know, they're all freaked out about that. So now it's all happening again a second time. They pack up and get ready to go. The brothers don't bother to check their bags to make sure everything's in order. It's not hidden at the bottom. It is right there at the top. The last chapter, if you were here, closed with the boys getting hammered, right? They all got hammered drunk at this feast. Gordon Wenham writes, hangovers in scripture and in life are often unpleasant. And uh, they are, they are going to learn that for sure. Verse 3, at morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, get up, pursue the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What you have done is wrong. When he overtook them, he said these words to them. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. When uh, we even brought back to you the, the silver uh, from the land of Canaan, which we found at the top of our bags, how could we steal the silver or gold from your master's house? If it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. So what is Joseph doing? I mean, let's get real. What's he doing here? As a character, you know, Bible teachers often put him in this special honored category along with Daniel. Sometimes they'll say, well, Daniel and Jesus and Joseph, these are the three characters that scripture records no sin. Of course, Jesus is sinless, but Daniel and Joseph, no sin is recorded. Uh, it's a dumb category because obviously Daniel and Joseph were sinners and Daniel spends time confessing his sins in prayer in chapter nine of his book. But we have to admit that Joseph's maneuvers in these chapters are a little weird at best. It's hard to know what his full sort of emotional state or motivation uh, were since the Bible doesn't specifically comment on why he was doing what he was doing. On the one hand, some commentators and scholars think he is purely trying to test the brothers, to discern the moral character of his brothers, and that these schemes are like the wisdom of Solomon when Solomon said, we'll cut the baby in two, right? Uh, that he's revealing their hearts. There are other scholars who are convinced that, no, actually at this point, Joseph's plan is to isolate Benjamin and actually keep Benjamin back in Egypt, sending the rest of his brothers away, intending to make sure they don't starve, care for them, feed them, but from afar, and that him and Benjamin will have a great time together living in Egypt. And then there are some who feel that Joseph is, in fact, just as much in need of heart transformation as the rest of the brothers, as Judah or Reuben or Simeon, that he's dealing with a sort of favoritism and hard-heartedness of his own. We're just not sure. Now, for their part, the brothers are quick to declare their innocence to Joseph Stewart. They make what is known in the Bible as a rash vow, uh, not one that's itchy, but just one that is too hasty. So 
They say, we're so sure that nobody stole the cup that if you find the cup, you'll, you can kill whoever has it and we'll all become your slaves. We, you know, I love what they say. We could never do such a thing. Really? They had murdered an entire town, stolen everything from that town, including the women and children. And now they're saying, how dare anyone impugn our character? I mean, that was a long time ago and they have been growing as we'll see, but, but this is a rash vow. Uh, maybe they should have checked with each other. Hey, I got blackout drunk last, last night. You did too, right? You didn't grab a cup and, and keep it with you, did you, right? They don't even worry about it. The Bible gives us quite a few examples of rash vows on its pages. Jephthah in Judges is probably the most famous. There's Saul, the king, who uh, he made a rash vow and it almost led to the execution of his own son, Jonathan. Herod, the king, made a rash vow that led to John the Baptist's beheading. Jacob made a rash vow about Laban's household teraphim idols in Genesis 31. It's always a bad scene. It's always a problem. It's always a mistake. Ecclesiastes, Leviticus, Proverbs all speak about this issue to us. And Jesus spoke directly about making vows in the Sermon on the Mount. So don't make rash vows. Be slow to speak and slower to promise. Verse 10, the steward replied, what you've said is right, but only the one who's found to have it will be my slave and the rest of you will be blameless. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, and they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Even though we can't be sure of Joseph's emotional motivation, we can see that he's recreating a scenario in which 10 brothers are pitted against the one young favorite, uh, as they had been when they uh, abused Joseph and sold him into slavery 22 years earlier. So it's a, a repeat of that situation. And already between the two scenes, there's a big difference. Because before, um, all of the brothers hated Joseph, to be sure. Uh, but before, the 10 brothers had, had debated about what to do with Joseph. Most of them just wanted to kill him. Uh, one of them, at least, Reuben, sort of wanted to, yeah, well, we'll rough him up and we'll knock him around a little bit, but then I'll get him home and we'll pretend like that didn't happen. Others wanted to sell Joseph. That's what they ended up doing. And so there was debate and debate about how much wickedness they would do to Joseph. But now here, what do we see? We see uh, all of them moving together. They're acting as a unified group. They act together. They move together. They speak together. They agree together. They bear the burden together. And as we've seen over the last few passages, these men are growing spiritually by leaps and bounds. And so the Lord's working in their lives. That's a great thing. Christians are called to unity. We're not always going to agree on everything. That's okay. But unity of heart and spirit is essential. Jesus said that it's our love for one another that is going to define us, right? That they'll know we are Christians by our love. Paul commanded God's people to pursue what promotes peace and builds up one another. And so there will be disagreements uh, as we work out our faith and, and live out our faith in a church and in a community and those sorts of things. There will be disagreements. There will even be offenses and hurt feelings. That will happen. But true Christianity bears with one another in forgiveness and love. We're told love is the bond of unity and that it's essential to our spiritual lives. 
And so it's important that we see here, the brothers didn't start yelling at Benjamin, this is all your fault. Remember uh, the time before they were in Egypt, they had this, this bad situation and Reuben explodes in anger. This is all your guys' fault. I wanted to do the right thing. But even at this point, we see that there's growth. Uh, they're not accusing each other. They're not pointing fingers. They're not angry. They move together. And it's remarkable that when the steward said, just this one guy is in trouble, the rest of you can go. It's remarkable that in that moment, in that scene, all the brothers individually, says each one packed up his donkey, turned around, headed back to Egypt to face the music. Uh, They didn't have to do it, uh, but they did. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What have you done? Joseph said to them, didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? So pagan priests and uh, Egyptian officials, they would have these weird cups and they would either pour oil into water or water into oil or wine into a different kind of liquid. And then they'd look at the patterns on the surface of the liquid to divine the future, sort of like reading tea leaves, something like that. But the absurdity of pagan divination is on full display here. If you use the cup to divine, how do you divine without the cup, one wonders. And if you can divine without the cup, one wonders what you need the cup for. So it's silly, but it shows the silliness of paganism. Did Joseph do these weird uh, divination rituals? We just don't know. A lot of scholars spent a lot of time trying to excuse him from it. Of course, Joseph didn't do it, didn't do it, didn't do it. But he's saying here right now, I use this cup for divination. We just don't know. Listen, the truth is, this is Genesis. The rules are a little bit different. He's living before the law. He's living before almost any revelation compared to what we have, certainly. Uh, He's living before the time when this sort of divination is prohibited for God's people. Now, I don't think that Joseph for one second thought he could actually divine the future with a cup. But we also know that he's trapped in this Egyptian system, right? He was brought out of the the prison, uh, put into this position, and they said, and now here's your wife. She's the the daughter of the high priest of On or whatever. Oh, okay. He didn't get to say, no thanks, I would rather not have some weird pagan wife. They were just like, this is your wife, this is your house, this is your job, this is your haircut, this is your clothes, this is what you're doing now. And so we're just not sure. What we know is that there isn't a sort of Daniel moment in his story where he says to his boss, yeah, I'm not doing that, right? Daniel, the book of Daniel opens up and they're saying, you're going to eat this food. You're going to go to this school. You're going to do this one, two, and three. And Daniel says, yeah, I'm just not going to eat the food. You do whatever you want. And they said, hey, we're we're talking about a guy who beheads people for not eating what they're told. He's like, yeah, that's fine. We're just not going to eat it. So we're not given a story like that in Joseph's case. So we don't know. Now, the brothers don't just bow down. They fall down in abject, desperate submission. Now, we know that all is going to be forgiven, right? What they deserve is imprisonment and death for their crimes. Not just the fact that they have the silver they shouldn't have, that they have this stolen property that they shouldn't have, but we know the rest of their story. We know what they did at Shechem. We know what kind of stuff Judah did in Genesis 38. We know what they did to their brother. These guys deserve imprisonment. They deserve death for what they've done and who they've been. But this prince that they're falling down before 
has peace and mercy in store for them. So we know what's coming. We know forgiveness is coming. We know reconciliation is coming and mercy and restoration and rescue. All of these things are coming. And the same is true spiritually speaking for every guilty sinner in the world. God is ready to forgive. His desire is to show every sinner love and mercy and grace and incredible generosity but we must each come to him, confess our guilt, and ask for the mercy that he's so ready to give. To bow our knees, fall down before him, and say, you are right, and I am wrong, and I need you to save me. Show us mercy. And, and this God is all uh, more than ready to, to give us that grace and that mercy. That's been his plan all along. Verse 16, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, how can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now, my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace back to your father. And so this is why some of the scholars think, yeah, it seems like Joseph actually wants to hold Benjamin back and get rid of the rest of the brothers. And we'll see how that plays out. Judah's opening words here are so beautiful, uh, especially as we know his story. He's a man whose heart has been changed by God at the deepest, most profound level. Though they weren't guilty of this theft in that they didn't do it, but they still had the cup. I mean, so they were guilty of having the cup, which wasn't theirs. But yeah, they didn't steal it, but he knew and acknowledged that they were guilty men. They had killed, they had stolen, they had lied, they had dishonored God, they had dishonored their father. Judah knows that they are facing a reckoning not just before Joseph, but before their Lord. How could they justify themselves? They couldn't. They were guilty many times over. And so in this moment, Judah knows they can only appeal for mercy, not for justice. He makes no complaint. He says, hey, we didn't do it. We got framed. It's a frame job. He doesn't do any of that. Because he's realizing in this moment, yeah, this, the Lord has uncovered our iniquity, he says. And so Judah, in his mindset, he's realizing that this isn't about the cup. This is about a reckoning that we have to face for who we are and what we've done. And without God's mercy, there's no hope for us. And so it's a really amazing moment. He only appeals for mercy. You know, in the Tamar incident back in Genesis 38, if you were here for that, we saw that Judah learned the importance and the power of confession. Remember, he had said that whole sordid thing happened, and then he said in front of everyone, you know what, she is righteous and I'm not. And so Judah has learned to become a confessor. And this humility and honesty has helped the Lord transform him from a murderous human trafficking John to the sort of spiritual leader that this family needed. And so it's a beautiful transformation made possible by uh, God's grace and his willingness to be changed by God's grace. This opening statement from Judah must have been amazing to Joseph. You see, Joseph was recreating this 10 brothers versus one brother situation. But as R. Kent Hughes points out, the temptation in this case was much greater this time around. 22 years earlier, the temptation to abandon Joseph was this. If we sell Joseph, we each get two pieces of silver. These were wealthy men. Two pieces of silver wasn't anything to them. And yet they had said, all right, let's sell him for 20 pieces of silver. 10 brothers, we each get two pieces of silver. 
And now the temptation is, hey, abandon your little brother who your father loves more than you and you walk free instead of being enslaved for the rest of your lives. Uh, that's, a lot, that's a lot higher temptation if you ask me. Uh, Judah says, no, we are guilty. We are at your mercy. And Joseph knew they weren't guilty of this cup crime. And so this would have been a huge moment because Joseph knows more than, than what Judah knows. And yet he's hearing what Judah is saying. Verse 18 says, Judah approached him and said, my Lord, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? We answered, uh, my Lord, we have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead. He's the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him to me so I can see him. But we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. So Judah's speech here that we've just broken up is the longest in the entire book of Genesis. A lot of it is a rehash for us, but there is a very interesting piece of information that we haven't seen before. He reminds Joseph that on their first visit, they had told Joseph, hey, listen, the boy Benjamin, he can't leave Canaan. Otherwise, his father is going to die. Their lives are bound up together. And yet, Joseph, in his ruse, proceeded with his demand that they bring Benjamin to Egypt. Did Joseph think they were lying about Jacob dying if Benjamin left? Or did he simply no longer care about the well-being of his father? That's kind of a hard question to answer. It seems possible that as Joseph was working out this plan of his, that he's not actually considering what it might cost, what it might do to his dad, what it might, uh, what the chain reaction of consequences might be. We just don't know, but it's very interesting. Throughout the speech, Benjamin is silent while Judah advocates for his brother. Christ does the same for us. We have no plea before a holy God. We have no defense. All we can hope for is a substitute to stand for us, which is exactly what we get in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the son of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the one who secures forgiveness for us. It is not our effort. It is all his. Verse 24, this is what happened when we went back to, to your servant, my father. We reported to him the words of my Lord, but our father said, go again, buy us a little food. And we told him we cannot go down unless our younger brother is with us. If our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One is gone from me. I said he must have been torn to pieces and I've never seen him again. If you also take this one from me and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I don't return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how could I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. 
Judah's pleas are all the more tender when we remember that he was the one who made the plan to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites all those years ago. Now Judah is fighting on behalf of this more loved favorite son. Throughout the whole discussion, it's Jacob is presenting his, his emotions and his family as if he had one wife with two sons, not four wives with 12 sons. But Judah says, yeah, <laughs> Judah says here, you know, this, 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 this brother of mine, he had the cup, but my dad loves him. He doesn't really love me very much. He doesn't really care about my mom or any of the other brothers here, but, but this one. Why don't you let me stand in his place so that Benjamin can go home? It's a very tender moment. He offers himself as a substitute. This is the first time in scripture that a person has done such a thing, offered themselves in place of another. I mean, even Abraham didn't offer himself in the place of his beloved son on Mount Moriah. He didn't say, no, put me down on the altar, Lord. He said, I hope the Lord provides a substitute and I trust the Lord to do so, but otherwise I'm putting Isaac on the altar. Now Judah, who knows what it feels like to lose two sons, offers himself, even though it would mean he would lose his other sons who were back in Canaan at the time. What a transformation of grace. This is what the Bible means when it says that in Christ, you are a new creation and that the old has passed away. Compare this Judah to the Judah of 22 years ago or the Judah of Genesis 38. He's a new man. And that's why our primary answer to problems or our primary focus is getting people converted, getting people born again. Because laws don't change people. Laws didn't stop Judah before from murdering people in Shechem and visiting prostitutes and selling his own brother into human trafficking, all that kind of stuff. Incentives don't make the difference that we really want. We see that over and over again in human society. But if a person becomes born again, if a person has their life transformed from the inside out by the power of Jesus Christ, man, then anything is possible. Look at what faith did in Judah's life. That's the only difference is that Judah before didn't have faith in God and now he does have faith in God. Look at, look at what, what faith and being born again can do in the life of a person like Cornelius, a person like Saul of Tarsus and you know, all of these individuals that we see on the pages of scripture. If we want societal change, the most important goal is for people to be made new in Christ. That's the most important thing because it's the most effective thing. It's not the only thing we care about. It's not the only thing we work toward. It's good to work toward good and biblical laws, all of that. But the most important thing is to get people saved and for our leaders to be exposed to the gospel. Chapter 45 opens this way. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Whatever Joseph's thoughts or plans were, clearly he was overwhelmed and and made a change here uh, he, he was just mind blown and heart blown by all he had heard and seen. These were not the same men he knew so many years before. And so it's time for the game to end and for reconciliation to happen. Verse three, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. So suddenly this 
uh, Egyptian prince who's been so angry and you know, accusatory to them for so long starts speaking to them in Hebrew. Uh, he had been speaking to them through a translator this whole time. Suddenly, he says, hey, I'm Joseph. His face starts coming into focus. He, he speaks the name that they hadn't used in years, but they'd thought of so often. Suddenly, they look on him who they pierced, in a sense, and realize, oh, man, we thought we were in trouble before. We're in some real trouble now. I thought we were just in trouble for stealing some silver, uh, and now I'm looking at Joseph and they are terrified, frozen in fear. But in this moment of revelation, as they, again, as they look on him who they pierced, to use a New Testament, you know, uh, sent, uh, you know, phrase, all their guilt is washed away by mercy and forgiveness in this moment of revelation. Joseph has no more anger. He uses a tender term even for father, sort of like Abba, It's all about reconciliation and forgiveness and embrace now. Verse four, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. Yeah, we remember. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. Sorry about that. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph says, come near me, come in close. Not so he can strike them, not so he can frighten them, so they can embrace. As we approach the Lord of glory, fall into his loving arms, he blots out our sins, because he paid the penalty. He wiped out the debt. He took care of everything. It's all gone because of what he has done. Joseph is emphatic. It wasn't you. It was God who did all this to me. Was he right? Is that true? Did God do all those things to Joseph? In the saga of Providence, it is true that God used Joseph as a sort of human ark to save his people from death. Like God used an ark to save Noah's family from the flood, he used Joseph to save the family of faith from the famine. But should we think then that God forced the brothers to do what they did? Some theologies would say yes. In the book of Acts, when the New Testament comments on Joseph's life, Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says God was with Joseph and rescued him out of all of his troubles. And so the Lord was working good out of the evil work of men because he needed to protect the chosen line which would ultimately deliver the Messiah. This is not a story of God making men do evil. God does not make men do evil. He is not the author of evil. But this is a story proving that sin and hatred and injustice cannot thwart God's grace or his plan. It is also a demonstration that no matter what is happening in your life or in your family or in your community or around the world, God will have his way and he will preserve a remnant for his purposes. And his purpose is always great deliverance. Joseph said, the Lord has me here for great deliverance there in verse seven. And so uh, rescue for the guilty, redemption for the undeserving, a great deliverance. 
When all the world is against them, God was for them. And though God is not the cause of your suffering or difficulty or opposition, he is able to work in and through all of those things to accomplish a great deliverance in and through your life. But that work will mean that we have to be agents of grace rather than grievance, reconciliation rather than revenge, forgiveness rather than hostility. Joseph, in this instant, let go of any hard feelings he had toward his brothers and instead makes himself available to be their servant, to help them and to save them and to give them all that he has and says, it's all yours now. I'm gonna give you everything that I have. I'm gonna extend all of my efforts to help you and to bless you despite what you had done. Verse nine, return quickly to my father. Say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all you have. There I'll sustain you. And there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all you've seen and bring my father here quickly. So the choice is very clear. Come and be saved or lose everything and die, right? There was no other option. There was no other hope. This is the forgiveness of God on display. Come and join his kingdom. Come and be fed. Come and be enriched. Come and be protected. Come and be embraced or die. That's the choice. What a shocking, heartbreaking thing that so many people choose famine over faith. And they look into the eyes of the one who says, I'm here to save you. I'm here to give you everything that, I, that is mine. I'm here to make you an inheritor with me, give you the best of all that I have to offer. And they say, no, thank you. I'm gonna stay back in the famine and die without anything to help me. Joseph told them to hurry. There was no reason to wait, no time to lose. The same is true for the lost today. Hurry into his presence, rush into his kingdom. He has only the best, the very best in mind for you. Verse 14, Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each one of his brothers as he wept. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. There was total reconciliation between Joseph and each of his brothers, not just one or two. Joseph shows real affection, not just a a begrudging willingness to throw some grain their way. No, this was real reconciliation. God embraces us with this kind of personal affectionate forgiveness. But here's the deal. Proverbs 28, 13. The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. That's what we're seeing playing out here in these passages. None of this forgive yourself nonsense that the world says, just forgive yourself. No, no, no. The way forward is to fall on God's grace and receive his forgiveness as we acknowledge who we are and who he is. Now, his grace, he's so ready to give in abundance to overflowing beyond what we could ask or imagine, but we must go to him. We must fall before him and bow down to him and confess our guilt and acknowledge that he alone can save. And then we can receive the richness of his provision. And then as Christians, we're called to practice this kind of generous forgiveness that God has shown us. 
We live in a land and a culture of hatred and hostility and grudges and retaliation and just taking joy in vengeance. That's what our society is all about. And that isn't the way forward, not in our families, not in our churches, not in our politics, not in our society. Grace is the way forward. Be a servant full of faith and forgiveness from the heart, knowing the Lord is on your side and his rescue plan continues even now. It is unfolding even now for the lost and guilty in the world around us and it is unfolding through your life so that the Lord can make these kinds of transformations possible in our midst.